Chapter Four of Empire by Clifford Simak. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The new apparatus was set up, a machine that almost filled the laboratory, a giant, compact mass of heavy, solidly built metalwork tied together by beams of girder-like construction. It was meant to stand up under the hammering of unimaginable power, the stress of unknown spatial factors. Slowly, carefully, Russell Page tapped keys on the control board, setting up an equation. Sucking thoughtfully at his pipe, he checked and rechecked them. Harry Wilson regarded him through squinted eyes. "'What the hell's gonna happen now?' he asked. "'We'll have to wait and see,' Russ answered. "'We know what we want to happen, what we hope will happen, but we never can be sure. We are working with conditions that are entirely new.' Sitting beside a table littered with papers, staring at the gigantic machine before him, Gregory Manning said slowly, "'That thing simply has to adapt itself to spaceship drive. There's everything there that's needed for space propulsion. Unlimited power from a minimum of fuel, split-second efficiency, entire independence of any set conditions because the stuff creates its own conditions.' He slowly wagged his head. "'The secret is some place along the line,' he declared. I feel that we must be getting close to it. Russ walked from the control board to the table, picked up a sheaf of papers and leafed through them. He selected a handful and shook them in his fist. I thought I had it here, he said. My math must have been wrong, some factor that I didn't include in the equation. You'll keep finding factors for some time yet, Greg prophesied. Repulsion would have been the answer, said Russ bitterly, and the Lord knows we have it, plenty of it. "'Too much,' observed Wilson, smoke drooling from his nostrils. "'Not too much,' said Greg. "'Inefficient control. You jump at conclusions, Wilson.' "'The math didn't show that progressive action,' said Russ. "'It showed repulsion. Negative gravity that could be built up until it would shoot the ship outside the solar system within an hour's time. Faster than light. We don't know how many times faster.' "'Forget it,' advised Greg. The way it stands, it's useless. You get repulsion by progressive steps. A series of squares, with one constant factor. It wouldn't be any good for space travel. Imagine trying to use it on a spaceship. You'd start with a terrific jolt. The acceleration would fade, and just when you were recovering from the first jolt, you'd get a second one, and that second one would iron you out. A spaceship couldn't take it, let alone a human body. Maybe this will do it, said Wilson hopefully. Maybe, agreed Russ. Anyhow, we'll try it. Equation 578. It might do the trick, said Greg. It's a new approach to the gravity angle. The equation explains the shifting of gravitational lines, the changing and contortion of the direction. Twist gravity, and you have a perfect space drive. As good as negative gravity. Better, perhaps. More easily controlled. Would make for more delicate, precise handling. Russ laid down the sheaf of papers, lit his pipe, and walked to the apparatus. "'Here goes,' he said. His hand went out to the power lever, eased it in. With a roar, the material energy engine built within the apparatus surged into action, sending a flow of power through the massive leads. The thunder mounted in the room. The laboratory seemed to shudder with the impact. Wilson, watching intently, cried out, a brief, choked-off cry, a wave of dizziness engulfed him. The walls seemed to be falling in. The room and the machine were blurring. 
Russ at the controls seemed horribly disjointed. Manning was a caricature of a man, a weird, strange figure that moved and gestured in the mad room. Wilson fought against the dizziness. He tried to take a step, and the floor seemed to leap up and meet his outstretched foot, throwing him off balance. His cigarette fell out of his mouth, rolling along the floor. Russ was shouting something, but the words were distorted, loud one instant, rising over the din of the apparatus, a mere whisper the next. They made no sense. There was a peculiar whistling in the air, a sound such as he had never heard before. It seemed to come from far away, a high, thin shriek that was torture in one's ears. Giddy, seized with deathly nausea, Wilson clawed his way across the floor, swung open the laboratory door, and stumbled outdoors. He weaved across the lawn and clung to a sundial, panting. He looked back at the laboratory and gasped in disbelief. All the trees were bent towards the building, as if held by some mighty wind, the branches straining, every single leaf standing at rigid attention. The trees were bending in toward the structure, but there was no wind. And then he noticed something else. No matter where the trees stood, no matter in what direction from the laboratory, they all bent inwards towards the building, and the whining, thundering, shrieking machine. Inside the laboratory an empty bottle crashed off a table and smashed into a thousand fragments. The tinkling of the broken glass was a silvery, momentary sound that protested against the blasting thrum of power that shook the walls. Manning fought along the floor to Russ's side. Russ roared in his ear, "'Gravitational control! Concentration of gravitational lines!' The papers on the desk started to slide, slithering onto the floor, danced a crazy dervish across the room. Liquids in the laboratory bottles were climbing the sides of glass, instead of lying at rest parallel with the floor. A chair skated, bucking and tipping crazily, towards the door. Russ jerked the power lever back to zero. The power hum died. The liquids slid back to their natural level. The chair tipped over and lay still. Papers fluttered gently downward. The two men looked at one another across the few feet of floor space between them. Russ wiped beads of perspiration from his forehead with his shirt sleeve. He sucked on his pipe, but it was dead. "'Greg,' Russ said jubilantly, "'we have something better than anti-gravity. We have something you might call positive gravity. Gravity that we can control.' "'Your grandfather nullified gravity. We've gone him one better.' Greg gestured towards the machine. "'You created an attraction sender. What else?' "'But the sender itself is not actually an attracting force. The false dimension is mixed up with this. We have a sort of false dimensional lens that concentrates the lines of any gravitational force. Concentration in the fourth dimension turns the force loose in three dimensions, but we can take care of that by using mirrors of our anti-entropy. We can arrange it so that it turns the force loose in only one dimension." Greg was thoughtful for a moment. "'We can guide a ship by a series of lenses,' he declared at last. "'But here's the really important thing. That field concentrates the forces of gravity already present. Those forces exist throughout all of space. There are gravitational lines everywhere. We can concentrate them in any direction we want to. In reality, we fall toward the body which originally caused the force of gravitation, not to the concentration." Russ nodded. "'That means we can create a field immediately ahead of the ship. The ship would fall into it constantly, 
with the concentration moving on ahead. The field would tend to break down in proportion to the strain imposed, and a big ship, especially when you're building up speed, would tend to enlarge it, open it up. But the field could be kept tight by supplying energy, and we have plenty of that, far more than we'd ever need. We supply the energy, but that's only a small part of it. The body emitting the gravitational force supplies the fulcrum that moves us along. It would operate beyond the planets, said Greg. It would operate equally well anywhere in space, for all a space is filled with gravitational stress. We could use gravitational bodies many light-years away as the driver of our ships. A half-wild light glowed momentarily in his eyes. Russ, he said, we're going to put space fields to work at last. He walked to the chair, picked it up and sat down in it. "'We'll start building a ship,' he stated, "'just as soon as we know the mechanics of this gravity concentration and control. "'Russ, we'll build the greatest ship, the fastest ship, "'the most powerful ship the solar system has ever known.' "'Damn,' said Russ. "'That thing slipped again.' "'He glared at the offending nut. "'I'll put a lock washer on it this time.' "'Wilson stepped toward the control board. "'From his perch on the apparatus, Russ motioned him away.' "'Never mind discharging the field,' he said. "'I can get around it somehow.' Wilson squinted at him. "'This tooth is near killing me.' "'Still got a toothache?' asked Russ. "'Never got a wink of sleep last night.' Oh, "'You'd better run down to Frisco and have it yanked out,' suggested the scientist. "'Can't have you laid up.' "'Yeah, that's right,' agreed Wilson. "'Maybe I will. We got a lot to do.' Russ reached out and clamped his wrench on the nut, quickly backed it off and slipped on the washer. Viciously he tightened it home. The wrench stuck. Gritting his teeth on the bit of his pipe, Russ cursed soundlessly. He yanked savagely at the wrench. It slipped from his hand and hung for a minute on the nut, and then plunged downward, falling straight into the heart of the new force field they had developed. Russ froze and watched, his heart in his throat, mad thoughts in his brain. In a flash, as the wrench fell, he remembered that they knew nothing about this field, all they knew was that any matter introduced in it suddenly acquired an acceleration in the dimension known as time, with its normal constant of duration reduced to zero. When that wrench struck the field, it would cease to exist. But something else might happen too, something entirely unguessable. The wrench fell only a few feet, but it seemed to take long seconds as Rush watched, frozen in fascination. He saw it strike the hazy glow that defined the limits of the field, saw it floating down, as if its speed had been slowed by some dense medium. In the instant, that hazy glow intensified a thousand times, became a blinding sunburst. Russ ducked his head, shielded his eyes from the terrible blast of light. A rending, shuddering thud seemed to echo, in space rather than in air, and both field and wrench were gone. A moment passed, then another and there was the heavy, solid, clanging thud of something striking metal. This time the thud was not in space, but a commonplace noise, as if someone had dropped a tool on the floor above. Russ turned around and stared at Wilson. Wilson stared back, his mouth hanging open, the smouldering cigarette dangling from his mouth. "'Greg!' Russ shouted, his cry shattering the silence of the laboratory. A door burst open, and Manning stepped into the main laboratory room, a calculation pad in one hand, a pencil in the other, "'What's the matter?' he demanded. 
We have to find my wrench." "Your wrench?" Greg was puzzled. "Can you get another?" "I dropped it into the field. Its time dimension was reduced to zero. It became an instantaneous wrench." "Nothing new in that," said Greg, unruffled. "But there is," persisted Russ. "The field collapsed, you see. Maybe the wrench was too big for it to handle. And when the field collapsed, the wrench gained a new time dimension. I heard it. We have to find it." The three of them pounded up the stairs to the room where Russ had heard the thump. There was nothing on the floor. They searched the room from end to end, then the other rooms. There was no wrench. At the end of an hour, Greg went back to the main laboratory, brought back a portable fluoroscope. "'Maybe this will do the trick,' he announced bleakly. It did. They found the wrench inside the space between the walls. Russ stared at the shadow in the fluoroscope plate. Undeniably, it was the shadow of the wrench. Fourth dimension,' he said. "'Transported in time!' The muscles in Greg's cheek were tensed, that old flame of excitement burning in his eyes, but otherwise his face was the mask of old, the calm, almost terrible mask that had faced a thousand dangers. "'Power and time,' he corrected. "'If we can control it,' said Russ. "'Don't worry, we can control it, and when we can, it's the biggest thing we've got.' Wilson licked his lips dredged a cigarette out of a pocket. "'If you don't mind,' he said, "'I'll head for Frisco tonight. This tooth of mine's getting worse.' "'Sure can't keep an aching tooth,' agreed Russ, thinking of the wrench while talking. "'Can I take your ship?' asked Wilson. "'Sure,' said Russ. Back in the laboratory they rebuilt the field, dropping little ball-bearings in it. The ball-bearings disappeared. They found them everywhere, in the walls, in tables, on the floor. Some, still existing in the new time dimension, hung in mid-air. Invisible, intangible, but there. Hours followed hours, with the sheet of data growing. Math machines whirred and chuckled and clicked. Wilson departed for San Francisco with his aching tooth. The other two worked on. By dawn they knew what they were doing. Out of the chaos of happenstance, they were finding rules of order, certain formulas of behavior, equations of force, the next day they tried heavier, more complicated things, and learned still more. A radiogram, phoned from the nearest spaceport, forty miles distant, informed them that Wilson would not be back for a few days. His tooth was worse than he had thought, required an operation and treatment of the jaw. Oh, hell, said Russ, just when he could be so much help. With Wilson gone, the two of them tackled the controlling device, laboured and swore over it. But finally it was completed. Slumped in chairs, utterly exhausted, they looked proudly at it. "'With that,' said Russ, "'we can take an object and transport it to any place we want. Not only that, we can pick up any object from an indefinite distance and bring it to us.' "'What a thing for a lazy burglar,' Greg observed sourly. Worn out, they gulped sandwiches and scalding coffee, and tumbled into bed. The outdoor camp meeting was in full swing. The evangelist was in his top form. The sinner's bench was crowded. Then suddenly, as the evangelist paused for a moment's silence before he drove home an important point, the music came. Music from the air. Music from somewhere in the sky. The soft heavenly music of a hymn, as if an angel's chorus were singing in the blue. 
The evangelist froze, one arm pointing upward, with index finger ready to sweep down and emphasize his point. The sinners kneeling at the bench were petrified. The congregation was astounded. The hymn rolled on, punctuated, backgrounded by deep celestial organ notes. The clear voice of the choir swept high to a bell-like note. Behold! shrieked the evangelist. Behold a miracle! Angels singing for us! Kneel! Kneel and pray! Nobody stood. Andy McIntyre was drunk again. In the piteous glare of mid-morning, he staggered homeward from the poker party in the back of Steve Abrams' harness shop. The light revealed him to the scorn of the entire village. At the corner of Elm and Third he ran into a maple tree. Uncertainly, he backed away, intent on making another try. Suddenly the tree spoke to him. "'Alcohol is the scourge of mankind. It turns men into beasts. It robs them of their brains. It shortens their lives.' And he stared, unable to believe what he heard. The tree, he had no doubt, was talking to him personally. The voice of the tree went on, "'Takes bread out of the mouths of women and children, fosters crime, weakens the moral fibre of the nation.' "'Stop!' screamed Andy. "'Stop, I tell you!' The tree stopped talking. All he could hear was the whisper of wind among its autumn-tinted leaves. Suddenly running, Andy darted round the corner, headed home. "'Begad!' he told himself. "'When trees start talking to you, it's time to lay off the bottle.' In another town, fifty miles distant from the one in which the tree had talked to Andy McIntyre, another miracle happened that same Sunday morning. Dozens of people heard the bronze statue of the soldier in the courtyard speak. The statue did not come to life. It stood as ever a solid piece of golden bronze, in spots turned black and green by the weather. But from its lips came words, words that burned themselves into the souls of those who heard words that exhorted them to defend the principles for which many men had died, to grasp and hold high the torch of democracy and liberty. In sombre bitterness the statue called Spencer Chambers the greatest threat to that liberty and freedom. For, the statue said, Spencer Chambers and interplanetary power were waging an economic war, a bloodless one, but just as truly war as if there were cannons firing and bombs exploding. For a full five minutes the statue spoke, and the crowd, growing by the minute, stood dumbfounded. Then silence fell over the courtyard. The statue stood as before, unmoving, its timeless eyes staring out from under the ugly helmet, its hands gripping the bayoneted rifle. A blue and white pigeon fluttered softly down, alighted on the bayonet, looked the crowd over, and then flew to the courthouse tower. Back in the laboratory, Russ looked at Greg. "'That radio trick gives me an idea,' he said. "'If we can put a radio in statues and trees without interfering with its operation, why can't we do the same thing with a television set?' Greg started. "'Think of the possibilities of that!' he burst out. Within an hour a complete television sending apparatus was placed within a field and a receptor screen set up in the laboratory. The two moved chairs in front of the screen and sat down. Russ reached out and pulled the switch of the field control. The screen came to life, but it was only a grey blur. "'It's travelling too fast,' said Greg. "'Slow it down.' Russ retarded the lever. "'When that thing's on full, it's almost instantaneous. It travels in a time dimension, and any speed slower than instantaneity is a modification of the force field.' 
On the screen swam a panorama of the mountains, mile after mile of snow-capped peaks and valleys ablaze with the flames of autumn foliage. The mountains faded away. There was a desert now, and then a city. Russ dropped the televisor set lower, down into a street. For half an hour they sat comfortably in their chairs and watched men and women walking, witnessed one dogfight, cruised slowly up and down, looking into windows of homes, windows shopping in the business section. "'There's just one thing wrong,' said Greg. "'We can see everything, but we can't hear a sound.' "'Oh, we can fix that,' Russ told him. He lifted the televisor set from the streets, brought it back across the desert and mountains into the laboratory. "'We have two practical applications now,' said Greg. "'Space drive and television spying. "'I don't know which is the best. "'Do you realize that with this television trick "'there isn't a thing that can be hidden from us?' "'I believe we can go to Mars or Mercury "'or anywhere we want to with this thing. "'It doesn't seem to have any particular limits. "'It handles perfectly. "'You can move it a fraction of an inch "'as easily as a hundred miles. "'And it's fast. "'Almost instantaneous. "'Not quite, for even with our acceleration within time "'there is a slight lag.' By evening they had an audio apparatus incorporated in the set, had wired the screen for sound. "'Let's put this to practical use,' suggested Greg. "'There's a show at the New Mercury Theatre in New York I've been wanting to see. Let's knock off work and take in the show.' "'Now,' said Russ, "'you really have the idea. The ticket scalpers are charging a fortune, and it won't cost us a cent to get in.'" End of chapter 4